Well, fantastic job, kids. Thank you so much. Uh, well done. Thanks, uh, parents. Thanks, teachers, for uh, allowing them to be able to do that. Um, and just what they were singing about is what we're talking about, Palm Sunday, uh, kind of the, the beginning of what we call Holy Week, as I mentioned before. And what this is, is the week in Jesus' life where the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, slow down and spend more time, more ink on this one week of Jesus' life than any other time in his life, which shows you that what happens in this week is of the utmost importance. And I think with next week being Easter, you'd probably agree. But what I want to show you today, what Jesus is doing in this last week of his life, we often talk about it, Palm Sunday, we sometimes refer to it as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the, that he's coming in, riding on the donkey. But uh, really, I, I want to show you what he's doing today as he is making a statement. And I'd go so far as to say what Jesus is doing is he's picking a fight. He is picking a fight with the religious establishment that is set up in Jerusalem, and he is going to force their hand. He is making a, a very profound statement to everyone in Jerusalem, especially the religious leaders, and he is going to force their hand by the end of this to say, you've got two choices. You can either crown me or you can kill me, but that's it. There is nothing else you can do. And, and I don't just want to show you how Jesus is picking a fight, how Jesus is, is making a statement, but I want to also show you what that means for us, uh, how we, therefore, are forced to respond to this claim that Jesus is making and, and show you how that applies to our lives. But, but first, the statement. I say he's picking a fight, and I think there's a lot of people who look at this and say, I, I don't necessarily see that in the details, but make no mistake, the people, the original audience that day, they saw all of the details, and I want to show that to you. And the first statement, the first detail that you need to understand was exactly what the kids uh, just sang about. Jesus riding in on a less than majestic steed of a donkey. Not exactly the kind of statement that says, here's a king. Not exactly the kind of statement that says, here you go, uh, look at me, everybody. Like, if we, if we were going to think, okay, you're going to ride in and make a statement, here's a chariot, or maybe here's a nice war horse, something with a little more regal, right? Something with a little more majesty, not a donkey that, you know, maybe your heels are, are, are dragging on the dirt as you're, as you're riding this thing. It kind of looks a little bit ridiculous. What is he doing? And, well, Matthew told us what he's doing. He's fulfilling a prophecy, a prophecy by Zechariah a couple hundred years before this even happened saying, hey, this is how your Messiah, your Savior King, is going to come to you, Jerusalem, on a donkey. And while we might look at this and just kind of maybe brush over that little detail, understand the original audience, they got the message loud and clear. And we know they got that message loud and clear because of the way they respond. They start shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And those weren't just any random words. Those were words specifically quoted from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. What I mean by that is that is a psalm way back in the Old Testament that was written to prophesy this coming Savior, this coming King, this coming Messiah who would come and save them. And so they are seeing this is it. Like, this is the one that we've been waiting for. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's who this is. And on top of that, they start shouting out, Hosanna. 
Uh, to us today in the 21st century, we might hear Hosanna and just think like, yeah, that's kind of a churchy praise word that we throw out in there in songs like, oh yeah, Hosanna. But back then, they understood the exact literal meaning of that word. It meant, Lord, save. Save us now. Lord, save us. And so what they're doing is saying, you are the Savior King. That is who you are. You have come to save us. Now, whether they actually thought that Jesus was going to come to save them from their sins by going and paying the penalty that we deserve on a cross, probably not. Jesus, even his own disciples, they didn't get that. They were probably thinking, well, here's a, a political king to make Israel great again. That's who this is. Regardless of that, what is absolutely astounding here in the whole narrative and the whole story of Jesus is that maybe for the first time, he welcomes this kind of praise with open arms and doesn't try to silence it. Like if you were to follow some of his miracles and some of the teachings that Jesus did in, in throughout his life up until this point, there are, there are several times when Jesus does a miracle and then he tells the person, hey, I know you want to go shouting this to the ends of the earth and all your town, but can you keep this on the down low? Can you keep this on the DL right now? Like, Because it's not my time. And we have another time where, where Jesus, he was doing this miracle for a crowd of thousands of people, and they were just following him. They couldn't get enough of him, his teaching, his miracles. And then we're told that they were following him because they wanted to make him king. And do you know what Jesus' response was to that? He told his disciples, I got to get out of here. Why? Why wouldn't you welcome that kind of praise? Why wouldn't you welcome that kind of fame? Because it wasn't his time. He says, this isn't, this isn't right. We got to move on. We got to move somewhere else. He was always trying to avoid the spotlight, always trying to, to avoid the fame. But now, he welcomes it. Everybody is shouting it. The whole city is in an uproar. Who is this? And they're, and they're all shouting this. And on top of that, this is not something that Jesus just kind of stumbled upon and is like, oh, suddenly all these people are saying this. Oh, gosh, guys, oh, it's too much. Oh, too much. Come on. You know, it's, no, this is something that was orchestrated by Jesus. Did you notice that? Jesus did not just stumble on a donkey and say, oh, okay, I guess I'll ride that. And oh, what do you know? There's a prophecy. And oh, hey, these people. Are, no. What did he do? For the first time, instead of walking into Jerusalem like he normally would, he stopped and he said, Disciples, I, I need you to do something for me. Go into the town ahead of us and get my ride. And he's waiting, just waiting for everything to be just right so he can go in. He's orchestrating the whole thing, making a profound statement to everybody I am the Messiah King. I am your Savior. I am your God. And if that message for Palm Sunday isn't as loud and clear in that, that first part of the reading that we looked at, well, the second part of the reading is it's even stronger, I think. Some of you maybe heard me preach on these words in one of our, our midweek services, but let me give you the recap of, of Jesus when he goes into the temple and he, and he flips over tables and he drives out people. What exactly is going on? Well, when he goes into the temple, what he would see is he would see a mass of people 5, 10, 15, 20 times more than what he would normally see because this is what's known as the Passover celebration. 
It is one of those feasts that God says, I want everybody to come. I want everybody to worship. And so the population in Jerusalem exploded, and they're to worship God at the temple. But the problem is, since they're probably coming from all over the Mediterranean Sea and world, chances are there's two issues. A, they didn't have a sacrifice that they were to bring because they were to bring a sacrifice. You had to sacrifice to God if you were going to worship him at the temple. And in order to buy a sacrifice, you probably didn't have the right currency because you were coming from your own province, your own area. So the religious authorities said, we got you covered. We'll set up a couple tables. We'll set up one table for a currency exchange and then another table for you to purchase your sacrifice. And then you can go in, you can worship God. Everything's going to be great. Except... The problem is this took place inside of the temple, a room, an area that was known as the Court of the Gentiles. Now, here's what that means. That means if you were someone who converted to Judaism, so you weren't a a Jew by ethnicity, by race, then that meant that the Jews at that time had set up a literal wall inside the temple that essentially said no Gentiles, no non-Jewish people allowed past this point. Because we don't want to take the chance that you might defile the temple and do something terrible against our God. And if you go past this point, the consequences are severe. So you can go this far, no further. And where was all this marketplace business set up? In that area where the Gentiles alone could worship. And just to just give you an idea of, of the commotion that was going on that was making it impossible to worship. Uh, We have a historian, his name is Josephus. Josephus was around right after Jesus Christ lived and died, and he records one Passover celebration, 255,000 plus lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. Like, Like there was a ton of activity going on. There's no way they could worship. There's no way, and if you want to make Jesus mad, If you want to make Jesus angry, keep people from hearing the gospel. If you want to really upset Jesus and tick him off, go ahead and put obstacles in the way for people to hear God's word and make it very difficult. And that's why Jesus was so mad and he flips out and he flips over these tables and he flips over all this stuff. He grabs a whip. He starts driving out these people, another gospel account tells us. And what does he say? My house will be called a house of prayer. He starts flipping things over. He starts rearranging the furniture, you might say. Now, we're talking about the statement that Jesus is making. Here's my question for you. Who has the right to rearrange the furniture in a house? If I come over to your house and I look at your your layout and I say, you know, I think the lazy boy would be better this way, and let's take the TV from this wall and put it over there, and let's move your couch, and you came home, you'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, get, just get out, Pastor, get out, Kendall, what are you doing? Why? Because I'm not the owner. The owner of the house has the right to rearrange the furniture. What is it that Jesus said? My house will be called a house of prayer. That's right. My house will be called a house of prayer. He says, this is my house. 
And they got the message loud and clear because as those people were driven out, people who could actually worship were coming in and and you heard the children, you heard the lips of, of children and infants and what were they saying? Hosanna. There is Jesus. Hosanna. Lord, save us. And I told you he was there to pick a fight. The religious leaders were indignant. They, they, they came to Jesus. Jesus, hasn't this gone on long enough? Like, you hear what they're saying. We all know what they're, they're implying that you're God. They're implying that you're the Messiah. Jesus, haven't, isn't this praise gone too far? And what does Jesus say? Nope. I welcome this. This has to happen. Almost essentially to say, well, religious leaders, what are you going to do about it? You put all of these statements together, and what he was doing is he was forcing their hand this week. Crown me as king that I am, that I say I am, and that everybody's proclaiming me to be, or you got to kill me. You either receive me as the Messiah King and the God that I say I am, or I am the biggest liar and the biggest lunatic in the world, the biggest fraud in human history, and you have to kill me. What's it going to be? And that question that he essentially poses, that, that fight that he's kind of picking with them, he kind of picks it with us too. Because it's the same thing there. How are you going to respond to me? Crown me? as king in your life, or reject me. But the one response that you cannot have when it comes to Jesus today is, well, you know, I like some of the things he says there. You know, that's, that's kind of a, that's a really compassionate teaching there. But this, that one's tough. That one's a hard teaching there. I don't really know if I'd like that. I really don't know if I'm going to be able to accept that teaching. Either he's God or he's not. And if you don't believe he's God, then I don't understand why you would believe a single thing that Jesus has to say at all. But if you do claim, no, Jesus is the Messiah King, Hosanna. If you do say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you do say that he is God, well, then you have to submit to everything that he says. He has to be king over your entire life. So that question then, is he? Is he king over your whole life? And maybe the one way you can kind of do a diagnostic check and tell would be to ask the question, do you give him the permission to rearrange the furniture in your life? Do you allow him to come in and reorder those priorities that are maybe not quite the way they are? Do you say, well, yeah, I I believe in Jesus. But I still also get to dictate what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it, and how I'm going to think, and how I'm going to behave, and how I'm going to treat other people. And I'm going to choose what's right. I'm going to choose what's wrong. I'm going to choose what's truth. I'm sorry, is he king or are you? I... You have to yield that control to him. And some of you know how difficult this is. Because anytime you give up control, every single one of us, you know, sometimes we say, yeah, I'm a control freak. Let's just be honest. Every one of us is a control freak. Every one of us has this ego, this thing inside of us that just wants to maintain control. And some of you, you know, maybe Jesus has been chasing after you recently and you're just saying, it's messing with you because for so long, for decades, you have been the 
the master of your own ship. You've been the one in control calling the shots, and now to yield that over, that, let's face it, that's tough. And I think for all of us, you understand how, how much this hurts. It hurts to, to give up that control. It hurts to yield that to Jesus and to let him be king because it means he's going to be reorganizing stuff. You know, Jesus reorganizing the furniture of our lives, it's kind of like how a parent has to sometimes reorganize and rearrange the, the house and clean things up. Um, kids, I'm not going to pick on you. <laughs> Don't think that I'm picking on you because every single adult in this room was a child, so they no, totally understand. But being a parent now of four kids, I have a whole new appreciation for what I made my mom and my dad suffer through. But any parent understands this. When you have kids, things get messy. And sometimes, it, like if you were to walk into my kid's room today, <laughs> a bomb just went off. Like, it's just an absolute disaster of Legos and Duplos and clothes and sheets and blankets and papers and animals and, I mean, just everything. I swear, I have only bought my kids, like, ten toys in their whole life. But you got grandma, you got grandpa, you got all these cousins, and all this stuff piles up. And you guys know that with more kids, the more stuff piles up, right? And you know the, the two worst words a parent can say to their children? Clean up. And it's like you just have sentenced them to prison for the rest of their lives. Like my kids just dropped to their knees. No, we can't do that, right? Like it's just, it's the worst thing ever. And they just fight and kick and scream and resist. This is going to take forever. No, we can't clean up. Oh, this is the worst thing. And it hurts them so much because they can't see the floor. But the thought of picking things up and putting them where they need to be, it's just absolutely devastating. But on top of that... Every parent knows there's even a worse step you can go. You know what that worst step is? Not just clean up. Throwing the toys away. Oh, that one kills them. The worst thing, I swear, is throwing a Happy Meal toy away in front of my kids. Why? Because they come and they say, what are you doing? It's broken. I'm throwing it away. No, don't throw it away. You haven't played with it in three years. You don't even know what it is. All the pieces aren't even here. Right? It's horrible. It is awful. It is messy. And every parent knows why we do it. It's for our kids' good. It's for their benefits. It's for order, right? I suggest to you that is how it is when Jesus starts riding into your life. Because he rides in and sometimes he goes into your heart and sees there are some ugly idols that have gotten in way, way, way too deep. And he's got to pull them back. He's got to see some priorities, and he says, you know what? Here's some tables I need to flip over. Here's some furniture I need to rearrange. Here's a priority. I got to rearrange that. I got to rearrange that furniture. It's a good thing, but not when it's coming before me, and I got to pull it back, and I got to put the priorities in order. And here's a sin, and this doesn't belong. And I got to get rid of it. I got to cut it out. And, and here's an attitude a self-righteous attitude that is so concerned with everybody else's sin over your sin, a judgmental spirit, an attitude of anger and bitterness that, that is keeping you not only from receiving my mercy, but also sharing my mercy. And Jesus says, we got to flip it over. we got to drive it out. 
And just like every little kid knows when their parents tell them to clean up, when Jesus comes in to clean house, it's painful. And it's painful because there's a part of us that loves that sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it, right? There's a part of us that loves that attitude of self-righteousness, of, of judging other people, of, of whatever it is. It's, it's just a part of us that wants to hold on to it. And Jesus says, no, give it up, let it go, let me drive it out. It's hard, it's tough, it's painful. But why does Jesus do it? For your benefit. For your good. Just like what you saw in the temple happening there. Driving all of this business that had no place to be in the temple, driving it out of the temple. So what? So the people who needed to worship could come in. So the people who needed healing could come in and be healed and receive God's grace. That's what he wants to do with you. And I think some of you know, know this feeling. Some of you have been convicted some of you are feeling that, that like prick inside God and his word and it's just hitting you and you're saying, ow, that, it's hard. I'm guilty of that. I don't want to give that up. You know what that is though? That is a good thing because that's a sign that Jesus is riding in. That's a sign that Jesus is flipping over some tables. Let him, let him do that. Let him rearrange the furniture because after all, Scripture says your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are his house. He owns you. So let him do what he's going to do. And understand he's not there to hurt you. He's there to heal you. Because in the end, that's the kind of God that he is. Yeah, he's making this massive statement that day on Palm Sunday, all of these details showing the statement, but, but he's showing you the kind of God that he is. Not a God who comes and says, I demand perfection, I demand this, you must do this for me or else, but instead he's a God who says, I love you so much that I'm going to give myself to you. He's not a king who rides into Jerusalem that day to, to rule over his subjects. But he's instead a king who puts himself under his subjects to become the least of all, right? A king who rides into shouts of hosannas, Lord save us. And he would do that by the end of that week in a way that nobody expected. Saving them, saving you, saving me from ourselves, from that little tyrant inside of our hearts that wants to call the shots. Saving ourselves from our own sin. Making himself the least of all on a cross so that God would never have to punish you. And if that's the kind of king he is, if that's the kind of God that he is, why wouldn't you yield your entire life to him? Either he's God or he's a lunatic. Either he is the king that he says he is or he is the biggest liar and the biggest fraud in history. But if he is the God that he says he is, and he is, 
And if he is the king that he says he is, and he is, then what furniture does he need to rearrange? What tables does he need to flip over in your life? Let him. Because that's how he brings his grace. That's how he brings his healing for you. He already saved you. You're already justified. You're already declared not guilty. Now let him sanctify you more and more and more so that you can appreciate his kingly rule. Bring, have him bring his kingdom into your hearts so that you can say with those original Palm Sunday worshipers, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed indeed. Amen.